Okay, all right, good to see everyone this evening. We are in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, and we'll read verses 33 through 56. And this is the account of the actual crucifixion. And I don't think we'll, we won't cover all of this tonight, but we'll uh, begin this, okay? Because there's a lot of cross-references and uh, scriptures from the Old Testament that are being brought forward, uh, and there's just a lot to say. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 33, says, And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we are very grateful even now as we, Lord, come to this passage that is describing to us the very cruel and shameful crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to see, Lord, anew and over and over again, Lord, throughout the course of our life, Lord, that our salvation is based upon what takes place in this narrative. Lord, all that he suffered and all that he did for us. And Lord, that this crucifixion of Christ was indispensable to our salvation and why he came into the world to save us from our sins. And so, Father, we pray that you might help us to understand more fully what it is that our Lord has done on our behalf that we might love Him even more and be more committed and faithful to Him and 
Lord, that we might live our life for your glory. So, Lord, we pray that you open our eyes, give us the eyes of faith, and, Lord, help us to come, Lord, to a deeper understanding of what is the love of Christ and, Lord, all that he has done for poor sinners, Lord, such as we are. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, here we again are in this passage. We've been led up to this point where Jesus is now going to the place of crucifixion. We remember last time that he was led there uh, or taken away out of the city and led outside of the city, outside of the gate, according to Hebrews chapter 13, uh, that he went outside of the camp to suffer shame and contempt there outside in this way. And now this is where they are taking him. We remember that he was so uh tired and weary from all that he had experienced, that he was unable to bear his own cross. So they compelled this passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry it for him. And now they have arrived here at the place where he will be crucified. And this will account uh, what happens uh, during this period of time. Now, certainly this is an event where not one of the Gospels uh, gives the full account of all that is recorded. But when we are comparing and contrasting them, we can see everything that Jesus said, everything that happened to him, all the scriptures that are fulfilled during this time. And so uh, by comparing and using the analogy of faith, which is comparing scripture with scripture, we can have a very full and clear understanding and everything that we need to know has been recorded for us, right? Though it was a period of six hours that he was there on the cross, yet what is necessary for us to know for our salvation and for our obedience and righteousness is recorded either in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or then even in the other books of the apostles, whatever they're saying about the cross, the significance of it. This is the central event in, the, in, in our faith, right? In our Christian life. It is the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because without his crucifixion, there is no resurrection. In order for him to be resurrected, he must die, and he must die because of our sin. So this is the pivotal event in the Christian faith, right? And we have to understand it, and this is why so much time and attention is given to this event, either by way of predicting it through prophecy, or of describing it here in the passage that we're looking at, or in explaining its significance in the rest of the scriptures. Because this is uh, what our faith is built upon, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As we mentioned from 1 Corinthians on Sunday, that the Apostle Paul knew nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Everything in the Bible, in one way or another, is related to this event and what takes place to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And before we begin uh, to undertake this, I, just by way of reminder... Uh, I think it was John Stott, who was a, a British uh, theologian, and he mentioned this, and I think it's good for us to remember this, while we are studying and meditating on these things, is that before, he said, before we can see the cross as something done for us, we must see it as something that is done by us. Meaning that we do need to understand that what Jesus does on the cross, he does do for us, right? It is for our benefit, for our salvation, but it also it is something that is done by us because it is on account of our own sin that he suffers and dies in the way that he does and that we have to have our ownership in the crucifixion of Christ. So that while we were not there presently, right? We were not there visibly and physically. We were not the soldiers. We were not the chief priests. We were not the scribes. We were not Judas. We were not the people mocking him and ridiculing him. Yet it is our sin 
that put him there on the tree and put him in that position. And the very nature of our sin is all of these things that he is experiencing on the cross. This is what sin is. It is obstinance. It is rebellion. It is hatred toward God. And this hatred toward God is most clearly seen in what Jesus experiences from his tormentors while he is there on the cross. And this is what our sin is against him. So we are very real participants then in the crucifixion of Christ. Just as we were not in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, yet we participated with Adam in his sin, so also we were not participants in the crucifixion of Christ. We were not there visibly and physically, yet we were participants in a spiritual sense in that it was our sin that nailed him there to the tree and that he suffered these things on our behalf. So when we read this and uh, our blood begins to boil, right, against those who are doing these things to Christ, it also ought to boil against us because it is our own sin that put him in this situation. And as we read this, it should teach us and show us just how great our sin is against God, right? Our sin against God is very, very great because this is what our sin did to Jesus Christ. And we have no clearer picture of the hatred of God against sin and the wickedness of sin than in seeing what happened to Jesus Christ when God imputed our sin to him. And if God will not spare him, then will he spare any of us? if we remain dead in our trespasses and sins? Of course not, right? So we should learn then in this, the magnitude, the grotesqueness of our own sin against God. And that must be our primary focus when we're seeing this, not the sins of others, but our own sin. But then secondly, as we go through this, it should also teach us of the love of God, the great love that God has for his people. Right. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God demonstrated his own love toward us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says in Romans chapter five, this is what God did for our benefit. We are the beneficiaries of all that Christ did. Right. It does bring him glory and honor but he already possesses all glory and honor, right? God is supremely glorified in and of himself. So we don't add anything to Christ, but he adds all of this to us. And what motivated him to do this for sinners? It is his love toward us. And so it teaches us of God's love for us. And this is why the apostle says in Romans chapter eight, that if God did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give to us all things? And what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing can separate us, right? What more can God do to prove his love for his people than giving his own son as a sacrifice for our atonement? So this is what proves God's love for us more than anything else is what Jesus Christ has done. And if we ever are tempted to doubt God's love for us, which we often will be tempted to do as we go through this life, then where should we go to reaffirm our, God's love for us? to the cross of Christ, to the cross of Christ, because it proves it, it shows how much love God has for his people. Okay, so with that in mind, let's pick up in verse 33. <clears throat> 33 and 34 it says, when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Here, the place that they come, the place of crucifixion, is called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Because this was a place 
that was associated with death and with people being executed. This is where they took them in order to execute them. And many times the bodies would be left there. There would be skulls there or barely covered bodies, human remains, human bones in this place. So it was called a place of the skull. And this is a fitting place for Jesus to go and suffer and die because it is the results of sin is why this place has this ignoble name as place of the skull. It is because of sin. So what more fitting place for Jesus to go and suffer and die for our sins and to experience death, to taste death on our behalf than a place that is associated with death, all right? A place there of the skull. And then when he arrives, they give him wine uh, mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he's unwilling to drink it. Here, this was common during crucifixion to give people this type of a drink as a way of both uh, giving them a partial numbness, not in order to ease their pain, but in order to make uh, their job easier in terms of crucifixion. Numbness of body and numbness of mind while they were there so that the whole ordeal would go more smoothly and it wouldn't be interrupted uh, with them writhing around and doing these kinds of things. But Jesus though he tasted, showing that he's not unwilling to receive some act of kindness from them. So he's not spiting them. He's not being ungrateful for them to, to give him this. Yet he also doesn't want it because he wants his full mental capacities. And he wants in his body to suffer and die for our sins, right? This is why he has come there, is to taste death for us and to suffer and die on our behalf. And so there is no numbing of these things, but a full experience of them when he suffers and dies there on the cross. Also, if we go to Psalm 69, Psalm 69 69 verse 20, Psalm 69, 20, reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick and I looked for sympathy, but there was none and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So no comforters, no sympathizers. And even what little sympathy he did receive was of no benefit or value to him, right? It was gall and it was vinegar to drink. And even these things he rejected and he turned away. Verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. There in verse 35, it says, when they had crucified him. Here, they state and they uh, indicate the manner of death in which he is going to suffer. He's not being stoned to death. He's not being beaten to death. They're not beheading him, though these were ways in which people were put to death. But here specifically, the mode is crucifixion. Crucifixion. He's there being crucified. And this was a very painful and a very shameful way to die. Reserved typically for the lowest class of society, right? Typically those who were of noble birth were not subjected to this form of death if they were put to death or executed for some capital crime. And even many times it was very rare for Roman citizens 
to even be subjected to crucifixion. This was typically something that the Romans reserved for non-citizens, those that were under their empire and those who were of the lower classes, and then even among them, the most vile, despicable, disgusting criminals that you can imagine. This is the type of people who were typically subjected to this form of execution. And yet here, it is our Lord and Savior that is subjected to this very cruel, very shameful, very painful way of dying, where they would take the person and spread their arms there on the cross, on the beam, right? Nailing their hands to the cross. Then they would take their feet on the portion that ran vertical, cross them, and then they would nail their feet also to the cross. And this could be a very slow, and it was deliberately painful death, right? We know that when they come to Jesus at the end, right? Because it is the day before the Sabbath, and because it is a pollution on the Jewish nation for these criminals to be hung on these crosses and to remain there until after the sun sets. They ask for Pilate to break their legs so that they will die a more expedient death. They'll die quicker in that way so that they can get them off the cross and bury them. And when they come to Jesus, they're surprised that he's already dead. This is after a six-hour period of time. And this could be a form of execution that could last uh, over a day or even days at a time. So it's not something that's intended to be a quick and uh, humane way of dying, right? Like people often talk about today, you know, giving someone a humane death, you know, like a lethal injection or shooting them in the head some, or, you know, chopping their head off. Something like that is very quick and it's immediate. It happens in that way. This was intended to be very slow, very painful, and also shameful, right? To be exposed and opened in that way in front of everyone for this amount of time, for people to come, to walk by, to gawk, to stare, to mock, to ridicule, to watch in this display of what is taking place there. This is what Jesus Christ was subjected to. And what was his great crime that he committed? He was meek. He was mild. He was lowly of spirit. He was gentle. All he did was go around doing good deeds for people, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the way of salvation. This is what his life consisted of. He was a very gentle, a very kind, a very compassionate man who was constantly doing good for people. And yet they're treating him as if he is the most vile, despicable criminal on the face of the earth. So this is what happens to him. Also, it is significant that he was hung on a tree, that he was hung on a tree in order to fulfill the scriptures where it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this is what the apostle brings up in Galatians chapter three, that Christ became a curse for us because it says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became a curse for us. We were under the curse of the law because of our sin. And the curse of the law is that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. That is the curse that the law pronounces on those who break the law, those who do not keep the law of God perfectly. And because of our sin, both our original sin in Adam, this is from Saturday and Sunday in our catechisms, right? Our original sin, we are guilty of tr being transgressors of the law, but also our actual sins that we have all committed. We all are under that curse of the law and we could not free ourselves from this curse the only way we can be freed is by someone coming and bearing that penalty, that curse on our behalf. And who is the one that bore the curse for us? 
our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And God intentionally, 1400 years before, in Moses' time, attached this particular curse to those who are hanged on a tree. Though this was a very rare form of death in the history of the Jewish nation, yet God attached this specific curse to those who are hanged on a tree that it might be a symbol of what it is that Christ would endure on our behalf by becoming a curse for us. He was cursed because of our sin. Also, it is significant that in this form of execution, he is suspended between heaven and earth, right? He is lifted up just as the uh, uh, bronze serpent was lifted up. So our Lord Jesus Christ was lifted up and he is lifted up between heaven and earth because our sin has separated heaven and earth. God is in heaven and we are on earth and we cannot be in God's presence because of our sin. And there's nothing that we can do to bridge this gap between us. And who is the one who brings men back to God, who reconciles us to God, who is our great high priest? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he is suspended between heaven and earth, showing again by way of symbol that he is the one who can reunite and bring back together sinful men and a holy God through his death on our behalf to take away our sins, which separate us from God. So this is also communicated there. Then also, and I thought it was a good point, made by John Owen. Some might think that an Arminian would say this, but even John Owen, who was a very staunch Calvinist, said it's also significant that his arms are opened. His arms are opened in order to show the compassion that he has for his people and that he welcomes us, repentant sinners, to come to him for salvation, right? This is what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does. So there he is crucified. And then it says, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Here, it is significant for us to point out <clears throat> because many times in our own day and in our own mind, we determine a person's value, their worth, based upon how much money they have, how many possessions they have. And it should be worth noting that Jesus, who is the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth, right? He's the only perfect man to ever live. And we know that he's more than a man. He is both God and man. He's God in human flesh. And God in human flesh, when he died, what did he own? What were his possessions that he acquired throughout the course of his life, right? We talk about people being so poor that they only own the clothes that are, is on their back, right? Well, what did Jesus have in his possession when he died? Literally, he only owned the clothes that were upon him. This is how poor he was. And he even says that foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He did not have his own home. He did not have possessions and lots of money. Not that there's anything wrong with having a home. Not that there's anything wrong with having possessions. And certainly, God did not give to Christ this type of life, right? His life is unique in that he did come to die on our behalf, right? So he wasn't concerned with he didn't have a family to take care of. He didn't need to leave an inheritance to his children. He didn't need a home to raise a wife and children. There is a proper place for those things. So don't get me wrong in that I'm saying that we shouldn't have any possessions. However, it is common for us to determine how much God loves us 
how valuable we are, our success, based upon our possessions and the things that we have. Yet Christ had absolutely nothing when he died, only his clothing. And then what happened to that? They took that from him and divided it there amongst the soldiers. So he died as a very poor man. And it is not one's riches or poverty that are the evidence of God's love for them, but it is their faithfulness to God. And was there anyone who was more faithful than Jesus Christ? No. And is there anyone that God loved more than Christ? No. So we should not judge God's love for us based upon our status or our condition in this world. Now, if God grants those things, we should be grateful for them, thankful for them. We should use them for the glory of God. But we should not determine our value, right? Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that can not be more clearly seen than in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But they did take his garments there and they did divide them among himself. And this is in fulfillment of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, if you want outside reading to accompany uh, this passage in Matthew 27, Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And many of these verses are fulfilled in Matthew 27 and they're brought up there. Psalm 22, verse 18 says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So here, what is happening with the soldiers? Now, the soldiers are not thinking, okay, we know in Psalm twenty-two eighteen it says that they're going to divide his garments and they're going to cast lots for his clothing. So we need to do that now in order to fulfill Scripture. Their, their mind is not at all on the will of God, the, the word of God, the prophecies of God, fulfilling these things in any way. They're just going about their normal routine, and this is what they typically do. But who is the one guiding, dictating, sovereignly overruling every single event that happens during this time? It is God Himself, right? God is the one who is orchestrating all of this. He is the one bringing it about so that everything that happens, right, in all of these people who are associated and surrounded in this event, Everything happens according to the will of God. Even these soldiers who are just doing this out of their own greed and just, just what they do, yet they're doing it according to the will of God in order to fulfill what the Word of God has already said. Now, if we go to John 19, John 19, 23 to 25. John 19, 23 says, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So here, even... The idea, because this tunic that Jesus possessed was woven, it was one piece of fabric, and them not wanting to destroy it, they didn't want to cut it into multiple parts, then they just decided, well, let's cast lots for it, and whoever the lot falls on, then they'll get this uh, garment, this tunic, that is seamless in this way. So all of this is according to the will of God in order to fulfill what was written 900 years before by the prophet David. So they, they are divided his garments among them. 
Then verses 36, And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Here it says, Sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. This sitting down is the soldiers, and the soldiers are sitting there watching what is happening to make sure, you know, that he doesn't come down from the cross. So he doesn't, you know, you might be able to wiggle loose or something like that and get out of there. Or maybe his friends or family would come. And if they're asleep over there, they're not paying attention, then that was known to happen before. They might come and uh, get him down and get him loose. And then they take off running and they get out of there. So the soldiers, part of their duty was to watch this crucifixion from start to finish to make sure that everything went smoothly and that the person being crucified actually died, okay, and that they did not escape. And that's what they're sitting there watching this whole ordeal. But they will also serve as witnesses to everything that transpires throughout these six hours. They're there when everything is going on. And at the end of it, one of them even testifies that this surely was the Son of God. Right? Though they are cruel men, and though they have no interest in these things, yet even they are testifying at the end of this that th this is not normal. What we've just seen and experienced, and certainly they had seen and experienced many such crucifixions in their life, yet there was something different about this man and about everything that took place there outside of Jerusalem. Then verse 37, they put the charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And if we go back to John chapter 19, this was the chief charge, not against in the eyes of the Jews, because in the eyes of the Jews, his chief sin was blasphemy, right? That he made himself out to be the son of God and that he deserved to die because of that. They asked him if he was the Christ and he told them that you will see him, me seated uh, in at the right hand of in glory and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then they said, what what further charge do we need or what evidence, more evidence do we need? He's guilty of blasphemy. This man deserves to die. They brought that charge to Pilate and Pilate, uh, he wasn't buying it, right? He, he knew that it was out of envy that they were doing these things. And the way that they were able to manipulate Pilate was that Jesus was making himself out to be a king and as a king, he was a direct threat to the throne and to the rule of Caesar. And anyone who makes himself a king is a, not a friend of Caesar. And if you don't put him to death, then you're not a friend of Caesar either. So this was the charge as it came from the Romans for the basis of his crucifixion. John 19, 17. John 19, 17. There it says, they took... Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrought, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So there, the charge was that he's king of the Jews, but then the Jews wanted him to just write, 
don't say he's the king of the Jews, but say that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. But then Pilate was unwilling to recant that. Also notice that the sign was put there in uh, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So that everyone who was visiting Jerusalem at that time would at least be able to speak and read one of these languages so that they could see and understand what was taking place here. And that even is to show and to, to signify the, that the whole world is against Christ at this time, right? The Greek world, the Roman world, the Jewish world, right? The world of the Jews and the world of the Gentiles all united together against the Lord and against his anointed one saying, let us burst their bonds asunder. This is Psalm 2 being fulfilled right here in Matthew chapter 27. And the irony of it is that he is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and lord of lords that came from the Jewish people. He is the son of David that will sit upon his throne forever, and God will give him the nations as his inheritance. And what is the means for him to receive this? His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. They're saying this in a mocking way. And Pilate certainly is doing this in a mocking way of both Christ, also to mock the Jews, right? Because this is what your king would be like. But actually, this is, this is his glory and honor, right? That he would come and die on the cross for our sins. That he would take the form of a servant and that he would not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but would humble himself in this way and that he would become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. This is his exaltation. It comes through his crucifixion and his cruel death there on the cross. So, but they're saying it not as a term of endearment, but to mock and to ridicule him. Okay, then verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Here, 38, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So two robbers, he's there crucified with these two other men. And who is in the middle? Jesus is, right? All the attention is upon him, putting him there in the middle of them, showing that of all of them, he is the one most despised. He is the one most hated. He is the one who is placed in this position of greatest dishonor. Though all of them are being dishonored and shamed, but he is there in the middle as if he is the central figure in some great insurrection and some great crime that had been committed. And all of this is also to fulfill Scripture. Because in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, it says that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered, he was counted among the transgressors in that he was treated as if he was the most vile criminal on the face of the earth. 
as if he was some great, notorious, scandalous sinner, some danger and menace to society. Now, these other two men, they were menaces to society. They were dangers. They were vile criminals who were getting what they deserved because of their sins and because of their crimes. And Jesus is here also receiving the same penalty as them, right? Outwardly, all of their condition is the same. They're all in the same place. They're all suffering the same type of death. And all of them are going to die on the exact same day. But they're dying justly because of their sins. But why is he dying? <coughs> Not for his sins, but for our sins, right? He is dying on our behalf. So the reason why they are there is completely different. They are there because of their own sins. He is there because of our sins. And because of our sins, he is numbered among the transgressors. He is treated as if he was this common criminal, this notorious sinner here, and even put in this position of great dishonor and shame in that he is there in the middle of them. So he's treated just like the other two. Again, outwardly, no distinction at all, but his punishment was for our sake. Then verse 39. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. Here, in order to make his suffering even greater, those who are passing by, seeing what is taking place, they are walking by, they're hurling abuse at him, right? mocking him, ridiculing him, right? saying horrible things against him. It's not enough that he's there suffering such a cruel death on the cross, yet they have no pity, no compassion, no humanity right, for this man, a man who they knew was a good man, who did many good deeds, who they heard teach the Bible. They know that he's not done anything that is worthy of death, and yet here they are hurling abuse and insults at Jesus Christ and wagging their heads at him, right, making these kinds of gestures with their heads in order to show their disdain, their contempt, their hatred for the person of Christ. And this also goes back to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, talk about them abusing him in this way with their words and also wagging their heads. Psalm 22, verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. So here, He says, I am... The way that people look at me is so detestable that I'm a worm and not a man. Like you would look at some loathsome worm, the disgust, the disdain that you have for it, this is what's common with normal people. When they see an animal or creature like that, they look at it in this disgusting way. And this is what he says that he is like in the sight of the people, a worm and not a man, despised by the people. They're sneering at him. They're mocking at him. They're wagging their heads at him in contempt and disdain for the person of Christ. And then saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. 
Here, in their mind, his manner of death proves that he is a fraud. That he is a farce, right? Everything about him is fraudulent. All the things that he said about himself, all the things that his disciples declared to be true of him, that they're saying that this all proves, this vindicates in their own mind that he is not who he said he was. He claimed to be the Son of God, but his manner of death is proving that he is not the Son of God because how could the Son of God be exposed to such suffering and shame. And this is the conundrum, the enigma, right, that was there in the mind of the Jewish people during this time, especially amongst the leadership. We remember from John chapter 3, verse 2, when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he said to him, Teacher, we know that you are from God, because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. He said, We know that you have to be from God. How is it possible for a sinner? For a worthless man, for a vile man to do the things that you do, right? Healing the sight of the blind, opening the ears of those who are deaf, right? Giving the legs back, right? To those who are lame, healing men of leprosy, raising people from the dead, right? How could anyone who is a sinner do such things if God is not with him? So the, the works that he did were testifying to the people that he was from God, but they refused to believe in him. They did not want to believe that he was the Christ, that he was the son of God because his life was accompanied with sufferings, with hardships, with poverty. He was a man of low estate. He was despised and rejected by the people. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So on the one hand, they have these works testifying that he is the son of God. But then on the other, his status in his situation, the meanness of his person, his lowliness was to them evidence that he cannot be the son of God. Because how could the son of God be so lowly? How could he be despised and rejected in a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? And this is where the Jews, this is where they failed. They stumbled over the sufferings of Christ. It was the stumbling block that led to their fall and ultimately to their ruin and to their destruction because his sufferings were incompatible with their thoughts, their expectations of who the Christ would be. But this is not because the scriptures were not teaching them these things, but it's because they, they refused to believe. They did not want to believe in a suffering Christ. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. The prosperity gospel is not some new invention that has been created in the, the modern church era. The prosperity gospel goes back how far? Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is when the prosperity gospel was created, and it has been alive and well in the world from that time onward. And it was alive and well in the days of Christ. Because the Jews did not want a suffering Christ, because if the Christ must suffer and die, then what must be true of his people as well? We also must suffer and die. We must have our share of sufferings as well. And this is not what people want. They want a victorious, triumphant Christ who will give them everything that they want. First Peter, first Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, verses four to ten. First Peter two, verse four. 
says, In coming to Him, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." He is a stone of stumbling. He is a rock of offense. For which group of people is he a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense? To those who disbelieve, to unbelievers, but not to believers. To believers, he is a choice and precious cornerstone. The believer sees the death of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, and says that I'm going to put all of my hope and trust in His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm going to build my entire life and put all of my hope of eternity on this person, on our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the believer does. But the unbeliever sees that and says, why would I put my hope in a Christ who dies such a cruel death on the cross? And here, these ones wagging their heads, mocking and ridiculing Christ at this point, these are not believers. These are unbelievers, right, at this point, who are doing and saying these things. Then verse 41. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Here, not only are those passing by hurling these insults at him, but here even the chief priests with the scribes and elders. Now, these are their leaders. These are the pastors. These are the, spiritual, the spiritually mature, the spiritual leaders of the day. And yet they are also joining in in this kind of revelry, this abuse, this mockery, this ridicule, which is below their position. It is unbecoming of a Christian minister or of a teacher of the Bible, of a leader in this way, to descend into such vitriol, such hatred, such malice against someone else. And the Bible even tells us that we should not rejoice in the misfortune of others. Proverbs chapter 24. Even if someone is a criminal, and even if, like these other two thieves, who are getting what they deserve, they were criminals, and they are dying on the cross because of what they deserve. But should we go and mock them and ridicule them in the midst of their suffering and not have any compassion, any sympathy upon them? Not saying that we say, well, we, we, we want to take you down from the cross. If they've committed the crime, then justice demands they got to do the time, right? They have to pay for what it is that they have done. But the dignity of man, they are created in the image of God. And there ought to be at least some compassion, some sympathy when you see someone in this kind of situation, but not rejoicing, right, at the downfall of someone else. Proverbs 24, 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. 
Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Right? Don't rejoice in the destruction of this person. Though, again, it may be what needs to happen. It may be what is just and right. But there still should not be this kind of revelry, this type of rejoicing at the fall of another person like that. But what are they doing? I mean, they're just jumping right in. They're ridiculing him. They're mocking him. They're reveling in the fact that all the things that he has said over these last three years, all of this in their mind is all come unraveling upon him here at the end. And now they have triumphed over him. They have gotten the final word. They have been vindicated in their own minds. And now they're going to let him have it. Right. And they're letting him know what they really think about him. Which also... All this is going to come back to bite them, right? It's, yeah. it's really going to come back to get them good, right, one of these days. Because who are they going to stand before on the day of judgment? They're going to stand before Jesus Christ. Yeah, so it's going to come back and haunt them on the day of judgment. Now, we know that some of these people who were participating in these things in Acts chapter 2 repented on the day of Pentecost. But not all of them did. Not all of them did. And specifically, not the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And it all will come back to them. Okay, then verse 42. Here's what they're saying. He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is again, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus. He is pressing him on this point. If you are the son of God, Right? If you are the Son of God. That is the point that he's pressing. And in his mind, what Jesus was experiencing in Matthew 4, in terms of his sufferings, his trials, his hardships, that this was inconsistent with his position as the Son of God. So if you are God's Son, then why is your Father treating you and exposing you to such miseries and such hardships in life? And this is the same point that they're pressing him on here as well. Again, in their mind, what he is experiencing on the cross is the vindication they need that he is not the Son of God. How could he be the Son of God and yet this happened to him? If God delights in you, right? If you are his Son, then God delights in you. But if God delights in you, then why are you being put to death on a cross? And if he truly delights in you, then save yourself. Come down from the cross. And they even say, come down and we'll believe in you if you will do these kinds of things. So they are here demanding a sign. Prove to us, right, once and for all, that you are the Son of God. Because obviously, what is happening to you now proves that you are not the Son of God. So undo this, right? Overturn it and prove that you truly are who you say you are by coming down from the cross. Prove that your God delights in you. Because if he does, then he will deliver you from the cross. This is the basis of their mockery and the confidence that they have, their bold assertions that he is not who he claims to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. They are here demanding a sign. The sign that they're demanding in this case is... For him to come down from the cross. That's the sign that they want to see that will prove to them that he is the Son of God. And this is what the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and wisdom of God. Jews ask for signs. And the sign that they're asking for here is come down from the cross. And because he didn't come down from the cross, he was crucified and he died there, then he is a stumbling block to them. They cannot overcome this article that to them proves that he is not the Son of God. But Jesus has already told them in Matthew 16 when they demanded a sign earlier. And was there a lack of signs with Christ? Was there a lack of evidence? There was plenty of signs, right? The signs were all there. And he's already told them he's not going to give them any sign except for one. Matthew 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. The only sign that he will give to them is the sign of Jonah. And what is the sign of Jonah? It is resurrection. It is his resurrection from the dead. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it says that he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God with power from the resurrection of the dead. God declared that Jesus was the Son of God, not by taking him down from the cross, but by raising him from the dead. God did deliver him. God did delight in him. They're just too short-sighted, right? And they're judging it according to their own carnal, worldly wisdom, not according to the wisdom of God. For what is the purpose of the Christ coming into the world? But to give his life as a ransom for our life, to save us from our sins. And how can that happen without the death of the person involved? That's what they fail to see. One, that his sufferings were not because of his own sin, but they were because of the sins of his people. So they don't understand why he's suffering, right? They don't understand that correctly because they don't understand their own sin. They think that they can be saved by their own righteousness, but this is impossible. And then they also don't understand that God did deliver him. He did deliver Jesus from death, but not by delivering him from the experience of death. He had to taste death for everyone. He had to taste death for us because we were under the power of death. God delivered him, not by uh, withholding death from him, but by giving him death, but then raising him from the dead. He delivered him through his resurrection. Also, is this a lack of evidence? Is there not been plenty of evidence in the life of Christ? There's more than enough evidence. So there was never a lack of evidence. And this is no different than the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who says to Abraham, he has five brothers. 
send him to my brothers and to warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he says, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, but if someone will go back from the dead, then they will listen. And what did Abraham say? If they won't listen to Moses and the prophet, then they will not be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Even if someone comes back from the dead, they're not going to listen because all the evidence you need is in the Bible. It's never a lack of evidence. What is it that prohibits men from the salvation that is in Christ? It's their own unbelief. It is the unbelief and the wickedness of the heart of man. It is our sin, not the evidence. It's the sin of man that keeps them from seeing the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And only the Spirit of God can overcome that. It takes the miracle of God. Then verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, you talk about really being down, right? Having this happen to you, you're being crucified, and yet you are also joining in in mocking and ridiculing this other person who's being crucified next to you. This is how alone Jesus was on the cross. Even those that he's dying with, they don't even have any camaraderie with him at this point. They are also insulting him, ridiculing him. He truly is the contempt of all men. Even murderers, even those who are robbers, even those who are being executed because of capital crimes, even they, in the midst of their own execution, are ridiculing and mocking our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both, and notice there, it says that, at least the way it seems obvious to me, that the robbers were also insulting him. Robbers, plural, right? There were two of them, one on the right and one on the left, and both of them are insulting him at this point. But does that continue with the two robbers? Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, and this is a very important to see these passages together. Matthew 27, verse 44, which to me is very clear that both of them were mocking him, insulting him. Then with Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. Because something happens from when they're insulting him to this. There's a change that happens in one of them. 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Here, one of them has a change of heart. And now, instead of insulting him, he is rebuking the other one and saying, you have no fear of God. You don't even fear God. We are getting what we deserve, justly. He is admitting his own sin and that what is happening to him is what he gets because of his own life and the decisions he's made. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Yet we're under the same sentence of condemnation as he is. You have no fear of God. And then he's asking Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Right? He understands 
who the Savior is. He understands that Jesus is coming into His kingdom. He knows that that kingdom is going to... He's going to enter into that kingdom when He dies, right, in the life to come, and that Christ is the gatekeeper, the door by which the sheep must enter into the kingdom of God, and He's crying out to Christ for Him to save Him. And then what does Christ assure Him of? That this very day, the day of His death, will be the day that He enters into Him with paradise, into paradise. So the day of His salvation and the day of His death are the exact same day. And yet He entered into salvation. There is no clearer example, though all of us are emblems of the grace of God, the free grace of God. This man is as clear an example of the free grace of God that you can ever find anywhere. Because what could He do for Christ? He could do nothing for him, right? He's about to die. Also, was he baptized? He wasn't baptized. Also, did he pray to Mother Mary for her to save him? No, he did not pray to Mother Mary, but he did pray to our Lord Jesus Christ to receive him into his kingdom, right? It refutes so many false doctrines and false teachings that are in the church today. And again, all that keeps a man from salvation is his own unbelief. Even this man, on the day of his death, cries out to Christ for salvation, and does Christ reject him? No. He receives him. And he's also a vile man who had lived a notorious life of sin up to this point, even to the point of, under his own words, getting what he deserved. He's being justly executed, right? Somebody who has committed a capital crime worthy of death. This is how bad this man is. And yet here... He's being saved by Christ. So is anyone so far gone that they're beyond the reach of Christ and the hope of salvation? If this man can be saved, then why, why not others, right? Why not others? He certainly was. Also, this is a, to me, very clearly teaches the doctrine of election. Romans chapter 9, right? You have two thieves, both of them hurling insults, no difference between the two, and yet now a change has come about, and one of them is now a believer in honoring Christ, and the other one is still insulting Christ and an unbeliever. And what made the difference between the two? Is it that the one thief figured it out all on his own all of a sudden, that he tapped into his wisdom, and then all of a sudden he figured all these things out on his own, and then he used his free will to believe in Christ? Or is this an act of divine grace, of the sovereign goodness and kindness of God? And this would be Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. It does not, depil, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. He has mercy on whomever he desires, and he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. And if God wants to have compassion on one thief and not the other, can God do that? Of course. Absolutely. He can do whatever he pleases. Can the one thief gripe and complain and say, this isn't fair? No. He's getting what he deserves because of his own sin. Can the other thief boast and say that I'm smarter than you, that I figured it out and you're too dumb to figure it out? No. 
because everything that he has, who did he receive from? He received it from God. So all he can do is thank God and be grateful to God and rejoice in the mercy of God to him. And the other one cannot gripe and complain because he's getting what he deserved because of his own sin, because of his own unbelief in refusing to repent and believe.